there's no way on earth we're going to go all the way through the marriage resources there. What I plan to do is to emphasize the first parts of it, then bounce through some of the high points of the other, and give you some time for questions if you want that at the end. May the Lord help me to keep with that schedule. Uh, one thing I also want to do is put some tools in your hand. And I've got kind of my biblical counseling joke, which would be when I started biblical counseling 40 years ago, we would try to get people to read books and they'd come back in the next session, they might bring the book and it looks, we could sell it again because it <laughs> hasn't been messed with. And then we started writing mini books and I've written several of those and you know, little 40, 50 page things. They don't read those. So now I'm creating cards. Um, <laughs> And you have one of the cards on there with that that's summarizing really what I'm going to cover in, in the main talk at the beginning. Uh, this is kind of a prototype we threw together for this. There are others during the break you can pick up uh, that in terms of just technique and working with people, when we, we counsel, we want to open the scriptures with people and explain things to people, but I think it really helps to have something visual, to have something they can take away with them. So I think in Sunday school or whatever you call Sunday school, quipping or something, uh, we're going to go through one on worry, don't worry, be holy. And it's going to really just go through Matthew 6 and Philippians 4. Uh, there's one on anger that I've actually written a mini book that goes along with it, but five things to tell yourself when you're tempted by anger. Uh, lies and truths, you know, lies that people who are depressed are tempted to believe in truth from the Bible. If you're familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, uh, it's really kind of based upon that idea that we need to stop listening to ourselves. We need to start talking to ourselves. He uses Psalm 42 and 43 as an example. Uh, five things to tell myself when I've been rejected. Um, that comes up sometimes in marriage counseling. And then there's uh, one more, which is characteristics of true repentance versus worldly sorrow. And my wife and I have had to do a lot of marriage counseling with abuse and adultery, which is not tonight's main topic. But you know, biblical criteria, actually, it was originally from an idea by Wayne Mack that I'm expanding, but it can also help. I've, I've had elder boards sit down. Well, this guy who's been abusive, abusive says he's repentant. Let's go through this card. And which side of the card is he on? Is he on the side of, self-justifying and blaming others and demanding his rights back or is he really broken and seeing his sin is against God and usually they're on one side or the other of the card I've also had the joy of sitting down even with a the husband of a wife who committed adultery and he says I really believe she's repentant she meets these biblical criteria but just I'll I'm gonna during the break you can pick up samples of the cards but they're all on my website you can download them for free and you can make as many as you want and uh we keep inventing more. It's just a tool. The other tool you've been given is one of my favorites. And actually, it comes in this form, which hopefully you guys are going to order. I've ordered these by the hundred. I Actually, I ran out, so I couldn't bring some for you. But I asked my assistant to order a couple hundred this week. Have you ever read The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy? Or Resolving Everyday Conflict, which is kind of the Cliff's Notes, the brief, you know, Peacemaking for dummies kind of is the shorter version. But a huge percentage of marriage counseling involves conflict issues and communication issues. And I find this for us is most effective. A lot of times as the counselor, you'll read the book and you can't get the counselees to read the book. 
This is going to only make sense if you've read the book, probably. Or I have audios on my webs on the IBCD website that goes through this as well. But you need to have some background in this. But it's a great, just like there's been, you know, the seven A's of confession and the promises of forgiveness and uh, this kind of the spectrum of how people deal with conflict biblically and unbiblical. But it gives people something they can take with them. It gives you a tool you can hand them while you're counseling with them and walk through it. Uh, so you give homework of, you know, what are the logs that you're guilty of, the sin that you're guilty in the marriage, and uh, what does it mean to forgive? And so these are tools to equip you. Um, I want to make one other broad comment about counseling. Uh, the biblical counseling, move, the modern biblical counseling movement was launched uh, over 50 years ago with Jay Adams and wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, which was based on Romans 15, 14, where Paul says, concerning you, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to admonish one another. And admonish or counsel, that's the Greek word nutheteo. But the idea that every Christian is a counselor. We're all giving advice to our kids, to our spouse, to our family members and friends. It's not whether you're a counselor, it's whether you're a good one or a bad one. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure in the world to tell people what they want to hear. I think it also may help to think in terms of different levels of counseling that probably different ones of you were involved in. A biblical example would be in Exodus when Moses was overwhelmed by all the people who needed him to adjudicate matters of the law and Jethro, his father-in-law, advised him, you know, get guys who can handle the ordinary stuff so that you can deal with the hard stuff. And I think in the context of counseling, I'm sure everyone in this room is at least probably level one and level two. Level one is we all should be talking to each other and encouraging each other from the word. And so you're just hanging out with a friend and they say, boy, I really had trouble with my spouse yesterday. And you would ideally want to bring in biblical wisdom to help them to think about it right. It's kind of like the conversations in Pilgrim's Progress. Just that's the way Christians should be talking to each other on a very informal basis. Level two, I think, would be a lot of what you guys are doing for premarriage counseling. We're now you're meeting with people on some kind of regular basis. It could be other kinds of discipleship or working through a particular issue. And now it's not just casual conversation. It's actually purposeful, planned, with a goal. And you want to equip people in the church to move from level one to level two. That's part of what tonight is about, is to strengthen the level two people. There's going to be kind of a level three situation, which is the Moses situation, where you have an anorexic, 16-year-old girl who's cutting and has same-sex attraction. <laughs> and by the way, that's not what, I'm not on level three for that one. You know, that's some people, like there's some things I'm comfortable with, some things I'm not as, my wife is the one that would handle that one and she has. And so and as you get more equipped and that's where you know, there are certifications, CCF has courses, ACBC has certification. You know, I, we have a degree program. There's all kinds of training online. So you're trying to kind of move up. And again, that's part of what we're getting at tonight. Now, the focus as I move forward in tonight is especially for marriage. And the first talk is actually summarized in this card that was put out on your table. Um, and, and the context for these six things and is that many years ago or several years ago, my then assistant asked me at a conference to give a talk about the most important things I've learned, and I guess now it would be in 44 and a half years of marriage and probably 42 years of getting involved in marriage counseling. I was 
kind of battlefield promoted when I was very young. And, and so as I thought about it, these are the six things. And something that was actually unusual in my whole life, I've actually used alliteration like three times. This is one of those times where all six things begin with L, which could help you to uh, remember. And it, so my wife and I, we do a lot of marriage counseling. The, I really believe very strongly the benefit of couples counseling couples. We have another talk we give together about how to counsel as a team. And uh, a lot of times, especially their marriage problems, the, the wife, if it's a pastor, and the husband and the wife, she feels kind of outnumbered by the men. And it's a tremendous thing to have a woman in the room uh, to help speak for her, especially it's been abused, but even other cases as well. So I'm glad there are couples here and you're, you, you do the... My, my wife and I love do, doing pre-marriage counseling together. It's good for our marriage. And, uh, you know, I kind of lead and she speaks up. So we do a great deal of this uh, together. And we're often shocked at how much trouble people get in. And sometimes I've almost had the ideas, you know, bring to the first session your wedding photos. Because there was a time you were happy. And you loved each other and you're excited to be married. We, we're dealing, actually, a large percentage of our counseling is with pastors and other full-time ministry people and spouses. And we're just seeing some horrific situations where there's overwhelming bitterness and anger. You know, they, they have the you know, smiley outside, perhaps, to the world at large and a great deal of tension inside of the marriage. And... Yeah, the, the question would be, well, what can we do to avoid that? What can we do to preserve the joy of a, a wedding day and a honeymoon? And what can we do to fix it when things are broken? And, and even last night, we had a couple, kind of an emergency, semi-emergency situation. We had a young couple. They've been married just over a year. And they've got some pretty significant problems. And so... Uh, doing a bit of triage there. And so these are the six things that I came up with. Um, the first is that for your marriage to succeed, the Lord, the Lord must come first. And really, I mean for each of you individually. Uh, that your personal walk with God is the best thing you can do for your marriage. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The previous verse is Galatians 5.15, where it says, if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consumed by each other. And the context even of walking in the Spirit, I think is largely, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is how we treat each other. The context is loving each other. It's the fulfillment of the law, or sinful conflict, which is so destructive. And so, when couples are fighting, and again, husband and wife, uh, in ministry this week who really have conflict just if you're having conflict I think you need to step back and are you walking in the spirit are you, you know, can you honestly say and, and how do you know if you're walking in the spirit well if you're having outbursts of anger and envy and strife you're not walking in the spirit those are the deeds of the flesh if you have love joy peace patience goodness kindness faithfulness gentleness and self-control okay but that's not what's happened in the midst of a conflict um, marriage takes a great deal of grace. That's you know, a common story you hear people say, I never knew what a sinner she was until we'd been married. Or better would be, I never knew what a sinner I was until a year of marriage. We are dependent upon the Lord 
to make it right. We're all selfish sinners. I, one of my favorite verses, John 15, 5, you know, that the, if you abide in Christ, you'll bear much grace. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this sense of dependence upon God. I think sometimes people go into marriage saying, oh, we can do this. We can make it great. Well, reality sometimes sets in. When couples come to us with troubled marriages, one of the questions I often ask is, how is your individual devotional life? Are you each in the Word individually? Are you each praying faithfully? Guess what the answer usually is? No. Uh, now that's not surprising. First Peter 3.7 says, if a husband doesn't treat his wife well as a fellow heir of the grace of life, his prayers will be hindered. Uh, one of the great problems in marriage is that people look to the spouse to meet needs that only God can meet, and they become embittered against the spouse when those needs aren't being met. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 5 date is a good passage for that, where if you trust in men, you're like the bush in the desert. If you trust in God, you're like the tree planted by rivers of water. And so they, they each need to be strengthened individually. Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Uh, one of my problems with, I guess we're going to talk about love languages tomorrow, but one of my problems with the love languages concept is it says we all have this need cup that needs to be fulfilled by someone who speaks our love language. Well, if you're looking to your spouse to fill your need cup, you're going to have trouble. That ultimately your, your need needs to be met by the Lord because your spouse will sometimes let you down. It's, you're not always living in the rainforest. Um, and so if something's not right in your relationship, you begin by addressing your own relationship with the Lord. And then alongside of that would be the need to be in a good church. Um, when I used to work in a counseling center, the biggest correspondence between counseling success was, would be, are they in a good church where they're being discipled, taught, shepherded, uh, you know, where there's going to be care, even discipline if need be. And oftentimes people came in kind of unattached or you know, going to the easy, happy church that isn't making any demands on them, doesn't have accountability. And so to be involved in a place where the means of grace are building them up spiritually, but also where there are shepherds and there are people like you that, uh, you know, that are getting involved in their lives and if necessary, giving help. I've had people say, I don't know what we would have done if we didn't have a church like this to help us through this time of difficulty. Uh, and then I will add, since we're talking about the Lord coming first, it's also important that a young couple, or any couple, have a devotional life together. That's, it needs to begin individually, but then, uh, and I think I, we had a couple recently who were having various troubles, and he had been taught in his church how to do devotions and he was describing this thing where we're going to sing a couple hymns and we're going to do this and this and this. Well, they've got a two-year-old and, you know, and he's describing it. That's amazing. I said, if you can do that, I'm really impressed. How often does that get done? Well, maybe once in 10 days. I said, here's my suggestion. <laughs> uh, five minutes. I've, these little, Presbyterian Reform has these little 31-day devotionals, two pages per day dealing with a scripture and some application of the scripture about fear or marriage or hope or whatever, worry. Uh, do that every day together and pray together apart from meals, even if it's five minutes. 
just to build that into habit. I'm, I'm surprised how many couples don't pray together. How many couples aren't at all in the Word together. And it doesn't have to be this big, gigantic thing. Just, I mean, obviously, if you're having a great time, you don't have to limit it to five minutes. But five minutes is infinitely more than zero. And I find in our marriage, there was actually, uh, now it would be 34 years ago, we went through a time of crisis in our church. And I'd been inconsistent in praying with Caroline. When that happened, we now for 34 years don't miss a night of praying together. And even though I, don't en- I did not enjoy the crisis, I can be thankful if that got us uh, straight there. So that's the first L. Yeah, I better speed up on my L's. Um, the second one, I mentioned that a few years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at the wedding of our nephew and his new wife-to-be. And I chose a text for the wedding sermon that I only realized later might have been the first time in 2,000 years of church history this was the text. But I liked it so much, I've been using it in other weddings also. And it's Proverbs chapter 24, beginning in verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles, and its surface was covered with metals. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber, and your want like an armed man. And you notice when you're driving through the country, you see some fields, whatever you grow near here, and you've got neat rows and a red barn, and it's all together. And then you look across the street, and maybe you can kind of see where there used to be rows, but there are thorns and thistles growing over. What's the difference between this field and that field? Neglect. Most marriages start out like the beautiful field. And it's not that somebody does something dramatic to cause it to deteriorate. It's just busyness. Uh, I had a situation uh, several years ago where a pastor was referred to me, junior pastor was referred by the senior pastor, and he and his wife, the junior pastor, associate pastor, was having terrible conflict with his wife. And he actually, in preparation for the meeting, sent me an email with a Word document of six pages of his listing his complaints against her. And she didn't need a Word document. She was able to go just fine without notes. Um, But... Very early on, there were two things I did with them. One was that I read this passage. Because, again, this is a couple. They'd been married maybe seven years at the most. And when I read that passage, he said, that's our marriage. He got all wrapped up in ministry. She got all wrapped up in the kids. She wanted more help with the kids. He was too busy in ministry. And that, by the way, this is a real temptation. Ministry brings extra temptations. Because unlike working for the post office, you're never done. There's always somebody else you can call, somebody else you can visit, somebody else who wants to talk to you, more study you can do. Um, And so he got wrapped up in that and just this spiral of anger and and bitterness and their field was now covered with thorn bushes. Uh, And actually, this is where we spent a lot of time with them on these biblical peacemaking principles, which to summarize is you pull the weeds, then you can plant the flowers. And their first assignment, actually, 
Something I've done with people is say, well, read for me Matthew 7. That's the do not judge lest you be judged. Uh, it says get the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter of your brother's eye. It's okay, here's the rule for the first session. The only person about whose sin you may speak is your own. Who would like to go first? <laughs> and so there are some marriages that are like the sluggard's field. And there needs to be confession of sin and acknowledgement of fault on the part of each person. There needs to be biblical forgiveness, which there's some great material here on that as well. Um, but that's not the end, okay? The, the objective of marriage is not to have just a bare ground. You, okay, I've pulled all the weeds. I've gotten rid of the thorn bushes. There's also investment of enjoying each other. And this happens with commitment. One of my favorite marriage verses in the context, it's funny, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes Probably not a book you think about with marriage, and it's probably not a book you think about having a good time. It's all, you know, vanity of vanities. But Ecclesiastes 9.9 is one of the bright spots. It says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil, which you have labored under the sun. That God has given marriage not just to get kids raised and budgets made and things accomplished he's given it that we would enjoy each other the very things you did when you were courting and you couldn't have enough of each other and I remember in college uh, again before cell phones and when they had curfews and I would run yeah, I'd be out with Caroline to the last possible minute and run before they locked the door at 11 30 for the curfew and then I'd drag the long full cord of the phone out into the hall and we'd talk some more and uh, those are good things in terms of to 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 be together and to do things each other enjoys. And, and my wife has been a stamp collector her whole life. So one time I go, let's go. There's a stamp show. She'd never been to a stamp show in her life. There was a big stamp show 50 miles away. And we went and there was some upside down, something or another that was, had a guard next to it and everything. But she was filling in her stamp book. And, you know, just she, when I was running marathons, she would run half marathons. She had a shirt that said, I hate running, but she did it. Um, so you, you invest. I had a man I was counseling uh, with, I think there'd been neglect. And I actually asked him, say, well, what do you think? And they had some kids, so life is busy. I said, how often do you think, what, what do you think you ought to be doing with your wife on a daily basis? Well, we ought to at least every day spend at least 15, 20 minutes just talking and connecting. Um, obviously, prayer would be great to go in there. What about on a weekly basis? Well, at least once every couple of weeks, we ought to go out alone on a date because it's really hard to have a deep conversation with your kids around in the house. And, and, and then even talking about, you know, going away, just the two of them together. Say, so, well, how many of those things have you done in the last month? None. Well, I have a verse for you, Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead to advantage. And those who are hasty come to poverty. You're, it's not going to get done if you don't plan it. Uh, marriage becomes margin. And so you make a commitment that you're, you're not, like for myself, I'm not neglecting ministry when I'm spending a bunch of time with my wife. I'm investing in my being qualified for ministry. You're not neglecting your kids when you spend a lot of time together. You're blessing your kids so they can see mom and dad who enjoy being together. But if it doesn't get planned, it doesn't get done. And then it's okay to enjoy yourself. Uh, again, it's, Plant the flowers and enjoy the flowers. The third L, going quickly, is lies. Uh, marriage begins 
with a promise, right? It's making a covenant. And we have these, you know, will you take and you, for better, for worse, rich or poor. So you're making mutual promises. So trust is huge in marriage. And when trust breaks down, that's very destructive. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now the context in Ephesians 4 is inside the church. We're members of each other with Christ being the head of the body. But meaning we have to be able to depend upon each other. The eyes need to depend on the hands and all these other things. Well, marriage, we're even in a sense closer. We talk, we're one flesh. And we need to be able to trust our other half. And if like back when I was running long distances, that if every quarter mile or so my knee twisted and I fell to the ground in a heap, I would probably want to quit running because I can't trust my knee. If, I'm, if my eyes deceive me and they say you know, the coast is clear when there's a car coming, uh, that would be terrifying. And yet there's some people who live in a marriage like that where uh, yeah, the other person, there's some people whose native language is lying. You know, why do we lie? Well, we lie to get stuff we don't deserve. We lie to avoid trouble we do deserve. Um, but trust breaks down. A real case. Counseled a guy, a couple, where he, for some reason, probably did something wrong. He gave his wife a beautiful diamond ring. And so after she'd had it for a while, it was getting a little dirty, so she took it to the jeweler. And when the jeweler was cleaning, he said, ma'am, you need to know this is not a diamond. It's a cubic zirconium or something. And okay. So she took it home and said, look, my the jeweler said this is uh, cubit zirconium. It's not a real diamond. Oh, that jeweler doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me see that ring. I'll go talk to the jeweler. So he comes back sometime later. Here's the same gold band, obviously a different stone in it. And then there's this massive bill on the credit card. <laughs> and yet, again, that guy, you know, he, does he really think he can get by with that? He's doing more and more damage by not being honest. One thing I really appreciate about Caroline, I've said she's like, and John talked about the disciple, who, a man in whom there is no guile, my wife, that I've never known her to lie to me. I've even part of lying also is withholding the truth from someone who has a right to have the truth. Um, and so there was an occasion where in California you weren't allowed to, I guess it may be true here now, but you're not allowed to talk on your cell phone or hold it up and somebody who loved her and warned her that probably a thing she needs to watch out for, but she's got adult sons who want to talk to her. And uh, Anyway, so she had an experience where she pulls up to stoplight and she's talking on the phone to one of her kids and motorcycle policeman pulls up and goes, uh-uh-uh-uh. And so pulls over, gives her a ticket, and in California, tickets are draconian. I mean, it's, they really get you. And so, again, what does she do? Well, is there some, you know, could she pay this thing without me knowing it? Uh, avoidance? Well, as soon as I come home, she lays it out. Now, that's the other side of being able to tell the truth. Is, is it safe for your spouse to tell the truth when the truth is not good? And to, you know, show mercy. So that was the challenge for me, was the only reason I haven't gotten tickets is 
I'm luckier than you. <laughs> I've done plenty of things that deserve tickets, as you've witnessed sitting in the right seat. So to make it safe, a more concrete example, with this couple we had last night, one of the challenges they have is that the husband has had, ever since he was adolescent, has had an addiction to porn. And even though they've been married for just over a year, um, that addiction has not been broken. But one thing that impressed me was the fact that he's been quite honest with her about his struggles. And one thing that impressed me even more is that her perspective, rather than being, I mean, obviously it hurts her when he struggles and fails, but that her perspective has been one of trying to, instead of fighting him, to join him in fighting the temptation, if that makes sense. And that's where honesty can be something really good on both sides. So lies can be like a cancer, destroying a relationship. There are some people whose native language has been lying, and it's like you had to say, okay, the rest of your life you can't speak English anymore. You have to speak Mandarin or something. You have to learn a new way because their just first impulse is to say whatever they can. Don't obviously, by the way, pre-marriage counseling. Don't marry that guy, right? Another resource I'll just mention in pre-marriage counseling or pre-engagement counseling, I love Deepak Reju's book called She's Got the Wrong Guy, Why Smart Women Settle. Uh, and he goes through like several different wrong guys that sometimes women connect with. And the, the market for godly guys is pretty thin, by the way. There seem to be more women ready for marriage than men these days where I am. Okay, the next one is how lust if, if lies are like a cancer, lust is like a bomb going off. And so, I mean, there, there are really kind of two different levels. I've already touched upon one, and it's the more common one, which is there are so many men, and there are also quite a few women, who have been addicted to pornography and self-gratification. Marriage does not solve that problem. Married intimacy is far superior to pornography, but there is a fantasy to pornography that married intimacy cannot compete with, in a sense. It's destructive in many ways. And so that's something that, you know, it needs to be fought and mutually fought ideally. It's something in pre-marriage counseling and pre-engagement counseling, I think, needs to be discussed that each person, you know, if they're considering engagement, hopefully, I would even say before they're engaged, this is the kind of the deal killer list, would be you know, either your sexual past of sex with other people or sex with two-dimensional whatever. And you know, to, to have some honesty there, probably both people were living in Corinth or Sodom or whatever, you know, will not be lily white perfectly clean, but part of choosing to be engaged is knowing this person's struggles. Am I willing to accept that and work with them on that? I would also say if you expect, if a girl expects to find a guy who has never struggled with this and has no struggles in the present, she's more likely to find a liar than that guy. Um, and so some of that is just having to help them walk through that. So that's on one level and then you know, within marriage, and this isn't a talk on pornography as such, but, you know, how do we fight it both with plucking out eyes and 
covenant eyes and getting, but also the, the bigger thing is the heart. You can always get around. You know, these, you can lock the doors, but someone determined can get past the lock. The lock may help you in your weakest moment to make it harder for you to get to the bad thing. But the more important thing, again, is to learn ultimate satisfaction comes in Christ. And in the book of Proverbs, you have uh, Madam Folly will destroy you. The adulteress will destroy you. A wife may help you, or a husband may help you with temptation. But wisdom, the Lord will keep you safe no matter what. And Proverbs 4, it even talks about making wisdom like your true spouse that will always protect you, even if you don't have a spouse or you don't have one who's helpful. So that's on one level. Um, the more, so the more common challenge is pornography. The more deadly is adultery. And I don't know what your church has been through. I don't know what your friends have been through. But I've had so many friends in ministry who have been blown out of ministry through sexual immorality. And I've had so many cases of counseling with adultery. And no one plans to, I mean, no real Christian thinks, I'm going to go out and I'm going to disqualify myself from ministry. I'm going to ruin my life. I'm going to break the hearts of my kids. But the pull of temptation can be strong. And I think we really can't, we need to guard our marriages. And just to give you a you know, scenario, when people fall into this, you know, I don't want to know every detail, but it does help to kind of, how did you get into the situation? And a common scenario is uh, a Christian man and a Christian woman from two different marriages their kids are on the same soccer team and the dad from this family and the mom from this family take their kids. And they're standing by the sidelines. I can't say from the Bible, you're not allowed to talk to your friend's wife by the sideline of the soccer game or the soccer practice. But it's twice a week for two hours a time and there they are. And then he notices he's kind of looking forward to seeing her. And she notices when, you know, he wasn't there today. I really missed him. And then, you know, nobody's marriage is perfect. And he starts talking about some problems he's having. My wife is so critical and, you know, my husband doesn't appreciate me. And then their hands touch and one kind of grabs the other and off they go. And we need to be very careful, to be very circumspect. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the Twitter sphere and the blogosphere about the Billy Graham rule, if you've heard of that. Have you heard of the Billy Graham rule? that Billy Graham and his uh, co-workers, they started his ministry you know, in the 40s, and they were young men. And they knew they'd be traveling a lot, sometimes without families. And so they made certain rules not to be alone in a vehicle or a restaurant with a woman other than you know, an immediate family member, wife. And uh, they did this for a couple of reasons. One would be, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. Don't think it can't happen to you. None of us is... You know, David was a better man than I am, probably at my stage of life, uh, with Bathsheba. And you know, he wrote all those psalms. And so that would be one side. The other side is that, and this is why I would never counsel a woman alone, is if she walks out and says, you propositioned her or you tried this or that, it's your word against her word. And there are crazy people out there who will do such things. And so 
I think there's wisdom. Now, where different couples and how they deal with things, my, part of my point would be you need to have mutual agreement and expectations between you, how you manage these things. Uh, lately, there have been some people, there have been, again, articles by respected evangelicals kind of critical of the Billy Graham rule, saying, can't we just be friends? I think Amy Bird wrote a book about, you know, can't men and women just be friends? And sometimes kind of sarcastically critical, like you men shouldn't think that all women are trying to seduce you. And if you men can't be alone with the woman, you shouldn't be a pastor or something like that. Um, the, the motivation Billy Graham had or the motivation some of the rest of us have isn't because we have plans and designs on a woman other than our wife. It's not because we think all women are evil. It's because we know human nature and we think there's wisdom in being careful of uh, Kevin DeYoung's church is near my house and he's on faculty with me at RTS and I think we were in a discussion about this thing and he said, I don't think my wife is sitting home thinking, boy, I wish Kevin had more close friendships with women. <laughs> um, and my best friend in seminary um, fell into sexual sin with the woman he was doing ministry with in his church and he actually hid it for several years until it came out. It had ended by then, but it came out years after it ended. I've had other people I was very close to, one after the other, so I, I think there's wisdom. And Carolyn and I, again, we have certain, we even have like exceptions, like, okay, we're not gonna be alone in the car, but now, when I was like, well, Martha Peace needs a ride from here to, she's gonna speak, can I take her to campus? Okay, we'll make an exception. So, I mean, but even then, it's, you know, if there's an exception, it's agreed. You know, if I have a, a personal conversation with a woman over the phone, Caroline, I'll walk into the room if she's there or just include her in some way. Um, to, be, to be circumspect. And then positively, and this is also, because I'm kind of blowing through other parts of the notes very briefly, that positively to build the intimacy of your own relationship the personal intimacy and the sexual intimacy of your own marriage, um, it's going to relate to the next topic as well to some degree. But uh, Caroline, one of the outlines you have in there is actually Caroline's that she gives to women called Grace Sex. And, that in, and this can be both men and women where it's like I'm going to be nice to my spouse physically if they deserve it and or it may be a reward for good behavior or it can be a punishment for bad behavior but that's not how god deals with us he deals with us graciously now in an abusive relationship and i'm not saying that men should be demanding and obviously if the woman you know we should respect all of that but you know, the bible proverbs 5 1 corinthians 7 says that god has given this he's also given it to bond us closer together and he's given it that we can bring joy to each other and share something unique with one another. And it is given as one of the safeguards. The Lord is a more important safeguard, but it's one of the safeguards that the Lord has given. Um, it was interesting. The case we had last night, um, the husband had a counselor who had advised him that if he gave in to temptation to sleep on the couch that night. 
And I didn't want to be disrespectful of this other counselor who was in another state, maybe even this one. But I just said, that really sounds like a terrible idea to me. One is, your poor wife is now trying to sleep knowing what you did. <laughs> and there you are in the other room. You're punishing her. And she even said, I'm, I get cold. <laughs> you know, that obviously I want him to stop. And I wanted to, you know, let's kill this sin. But it's like penance. It's like Luther beating himself or something. Is that, and I think some men who struggle have a hard time receiving grace. Not just struggle sexually, but even struggle, I'm just not a very good husband, I don't deserve this. Marriage is about giving and receiving grace. And that would be you know, on both sides, not law sex, but grace sex. That's going to be the last major point. Um, and again, there, are, there can be dangers. Sex can be an idol even within marriage where I must have what I want, when I want, the way I want it, da-da-da-da-da. But I don't think it's our job to punish the idolater if it's the other person. But again, to try to show grace. Romans, and we talked about this with a couple last night. Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, so we need to guard our marriage from lust. The next is lift one another up. And this is something, the last two points are really from a couple books that have really had a huge impact on me. I don't know if any of you have read Sam Crabtree's Practicing Affirmation. Has anybody read that book? You're missing out. He's actually, when I leave here, I'm going to go to the airport and pick him up in San Diego on Sunday. And he's going to be speaking for us at RTS a couple times on Monday and Tuesday. He wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. Sam was the, one of the pastors with John Piper for many years at Bethlehem and Minnesota. And Piper's retired. Sam is now working at a church plant uh, from that church. But this book, Practicing Affirmation, when it came out, a friend gave it to me. It's been many, you know, over 10 years ago, probably. I remember thinking, I'm really suspicious of a book that's called Practicing Affirmation. <laughs> Like, I'm a Calvinist, and I believe in total depravity. All right. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in total depravity. And I'm a biblical counselor. I'm kind of against the self-esteem thing. So, but he made a real case. So I'll challenge you now. Can you prove from the Bible that affirming God's good work in others is biblical? Can you? I can. Can you? The classic would be Proverbs 31. The, the virtuous woman. Her husband blesses her and says, many women have done well, but you surpassed them all. So the, the climax of the blessing of the, the woman is that her husband and children recognize, they acknowledge the good that she's done. Uh, when Paul writes to the churches, how does he usually begin the letter? I thank God for this thing about you. Even the Corinthians get something. When Jesus wrote uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to the seven churches, most of them he found something to commend before he rebukes them. Uh, I was in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. Somebody else was teaching. And at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians, where the, the greetings, 1 Corinthians 16, you kind of go over that really fast. Uh, there was one fellow that said, 
such men are, are worthy of honor. You know, like acknowledge such men. Uh, and so it's biblical to acknowledge the good work of God in others and especially your spouse. And something that Crabtree talks about is most relationships, romantic relationships, begin with a great deal of affirmation and very little criticism. And then over time, (laughs) the affirmation goes down and the criticism goes up. And I've counseled these couples. <laughs> and it's, it's not like they're going to divorce. It's just kind of like they, they got long COVID, right? You know, or they always have the flu or something. And they, you know, so they're not, they're, but they're just, they're not building each other up. They're correcting each other. They're criticizing each other. Another analogy he gives is that affirmation is like putting money, making deposits in the bank of relationship. And correction is like making a withdrawal. Now, the Bible says sometimes we have to correct each other. That's part of biblical peacemaking. Galatians 6, if someone's caught in a trespass, you are spiritual, restore him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So it's, it's biblical to correct, but if you don't have any money in the bank, <laughs> they're not going to honor your checks or your debit card. And so, and I'll, I'm going to write this now to kids because some of us may be old enough to have teenagers or beyond is that if I were to take the typical teenager growing up in a Christian family and say, what do your parents think is wrong with you? Do you think they'd be able to answer that question? No problem, right? What do your parents admire and appreciate about you? I have no idea. I had an experience, actually, when I read the book, and by this time my youngest son would have been in his early 20s, and uh, we were like watching sports together, and I just said, hey, Daniel, I really appreciate how resilient you are, something like that. Well, a minute and a half later, I see on Facebook, Daniel writes, my dad, Jim Neuheiser, just said blank about me, which to me was an indication that I'd not done enough of that for the first 20-plus years of his life. Um, I've done this in counseling with couples. Just tell me three things for which you thank God about your spouse, the things you appreciate. And I've, I've seen cases where the temperature in the room changed when the husband says, boy, she's really careful with money. She's great with the kids. I know I can trust her. She's like, I didn't know you thought any of those things. I'll make another comment related back an L. I think Especially with women, the main reason women fall into adultery is not because they lust after sex. It's because they're vulnerable to flattery. And so if you're married to someone who you're never, you're never good enough for them, you've never um, met their expectations, you, you know, they're always criticizing you, and here's someone who tells you you're attractive and smart and capable. And it happens to men as well. The flatterer spreads a net for your feet. And I was talking to a pastor this week, and he's in a very hard marriage. And it's awkward because in a sense, if he would have known what he was getting into, he probably wouldn't have married this person. But now it's God's will. They're married. But again, same thing like with a teenager. I said, it would be, Caroline's working with the wife. I'm working with the husband. Sometimes we're together. But that, what does your wife know that you think is wrong with her? And I know what she thinks because I've heard it. 
would know what he, anyway, what she thinks is what he thinks is wrong with her, and you know he goes down the things. Said, "What does she think that you appreciate about her?" And I've pleaded with him. He says, "I've given this as homework. Like every day, find at least three things to affirm honestly about your spouse. Not just this week, but until one of you dies." And for this guy, because he's kind of a list guy, he said, I've tried that before. And she calls me on it, like, whatever. You know, she criticizes my affirmation. I said, okay, one more step for you, which is I want you in your own devotions every day to give thanks to God sincerely for three to five things about her before you bring it to her. It's not just to check it off the list, but to genuinely look. You, like, have you ever seen like at the beach these people with the metal detectors? Like to be an affirmation detector. You're looking for things to affirm. And again, that's not just with your spouse. It's with your kids. Um, it's very, very powerful. And then the last of the six L's before dessert <laughs> is a double L, which is love, not law. Most human relationships are fundamentally based upon law, and we all tend to go there, which is, I will treat you according to what you've earned or what you deserve. If you meet my expectations, if you're kind to me, I will be kind to you. If you're not kind to me, I will not be kind to you. If you're unkind to me, I will be unkind back. And I don't know each of you personally, Probably those discussions have taken place in your own marriage where I know it has in ours sometimes where, you know, I don't like how you've treated me. I don't like how you've neglected me or whatever the issues may be. And we have this temptation to operate based upon law. But that's not how God has treated us. That he has shown us great mercy. That, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And... Some of this even goes back to kind of the correction thing. There are times lovingly you have to correct each other. But even the correction, and just an analogy would be, it's from Galatians 6.1, is that so often we come in correction as a judge instead of as a doctor or a nurse. In Galatians 6, says, if someone's caught on a trespass, you are spiritual, restore him gently. Look to yourself so you will not be tempted. And so you're there to help. But there's a difference, you know, so much of con confrontation in human relationships is in the flesh and it's in judgment. You know, James says, don't judge each other, verses 11 and 12, chapter 4. You know, there's only one lawgiver and judge, which is God. We, we like to judge. We like to say, I got you now and I can score some points. Again, there's a time to say lovingly, this hurt me. I know you don't want to hurt me. Yeah, I know you want us to have a good relationship. So, but... To, to give up the judge part and then to treat each other according to grace. And Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do, and he's speaking for my conference, our conference this summer in California. Uh, and 
in, in Centerside do, uh, by the way, I'm going to do an aside. On the ibcd.org website, which is our, there are hundreds of free audios. Sam, Sam Crabtree on Practicing Affirmation. We have audios based on the book, so if you don't read the book, you can listen to that for free. We also have Dave Harvey on When Sinners Say I Do, two audios based on that. But on, on the audios which follow the book, you know, he begins with 1 Timothy 1.15, which says, it's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am foremost or chief. And when you see yourself as the chief of sinners, when you see that your sin is the greatest threat posed to your marriage, and you deal with your sin honestly, uh, you know, that, that's the beginning of it. But then you married a sinner. Uh, that, and God's call to you when you see the sin of your spouse is not to show judgment, but to show mercy. And when Caroline sins, I shouldn't be shocked. I can't believe you sin. Of course she's going to sin sometimes. And you know, after 44 and a half years, it's the same things over and over again for each of us probably. We have each have the you know, same tendencies we had a long time ago, hopefully being sanctified to some degree. But her sin is opportunity for me to show mercy rather than judgment. And when someone sins, I mean, first realizing it's sin against God more than you, but you know, again, the temptation is I don't like what you did. I'm going to condemn you, punish you, but just, okay, how can I help you? How can I pray with you, pray for you, or let you calm down before I talk to you? Um, and then, even for myself, just that, you know, my prayer for myself would be that I would be a man of grace. That I would be, that Caroline, when she sees how I treat her, would say, he treats me in a way that reminds me of how Christ loves me. And I can say, honestly, that's what I get from her. It's not law, but it's love, it's grace. And the more we grow in our knowledge of the love of Christ, the more we'll be able to do this. I think it's interesting, Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, you know, after Paul is in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you know, expounded the gospel. You know, the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, the Spirit uh, sealed you, you were dead in sin, God made you alive, you've been incorporated into the people of God, you have access to God, all these things. Well, he ends the, what we've called the doctrine section sometimes. He, he prays that we would be strengthened inwardly to be able to grasp the height, the length, the breadth, the depth of the love of Christ. And then in chapters 4 to 6, when he tells us all these things to do, including manage ourselves properly in marriage, I think the only way we can do that is if the prayer at the end of chapter 3 is answered. If I understand the love of Christ, that's what's going to enable and not just be an example, but empower me to reflect, reflect that love to somebody else. If a husband is not loving his wife well, just telling him to put on his to-do list to buy her candy and flowers or take her on a date is not going to solve the problem. If it's a husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, if a man is not loving his wife well, he needs to know more of the love of Christ for him that he'll be able to reflect that back to her. Um, and so, and it's something, you know, I, in Galatians 5.17 Paul says, this is hard. The flesh sets this desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another. You may not do the things you please. It can be a struggle. But I think an important point from Galatians 5 is that your spouse can't make you fleshly. They can tempt you. They can annoy you. 
But if you're walking in the Spirit, you can still bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the real test of walking in the Spirit isn't when everything's great. <laughs> it's when things are hard. And the Lord works in you to still, to still be kind and to be gracious in the, in the context of that very difficult situation. So before dessert, pop quiz. First L. You can look at your cheat notes if you're stuck. <laughs> the Lord comes first. Laziness is like the weeds in the garden. Lies can be like a cancer that are undermining the marriage. Lust is like a bomb going off that can be so destructive so quickly. Positively lift one another up and base your marriage not on law but on love and grace.